Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. This morning you need to have your Bibles, your phones, iPads, or tablets, whatever you have ready. You need to be ready to take some notes. I think I'll have some some good notes up on the board, <clears throat> on the uh, on the board, <laughs> on the on the screen for you to take pictures of if you want to snag those. Let me tell you what we're doing here today. Uh, today, immediately following this uh, gathering, we're meeting with uh, right out about a hundred people uh, that are coming to our sort of next steps fast track, and the next steps is typically a three to four week. Uh, gathering of people who are new to New Hope and want to find out what we're about and, and see what we believe and what our values and, and uh, vision and mission and sort of what makes us work here. And so we take time to do that. Today we're, we're, we're experimenting with something for the first time. We're trying to do it sort of all at, at, at one sitting. I don't know that that'll be possible, but we're going to do that. The teaching I'm about to share with you, it comes from that. So the good news for them is That'll be a significant segment we can, we can sort of move past today. But I wanted to do two things at once, and I'm going to tell you how I landed there. I wanted to share it here uh, because it's so critical, and, um, and I'm, we have been living in 2 Corinthians 3. Uh, if you do, uh, everybody say 2 Corinthians 3. As a matter of fact, let me go ahead and push on this. Make that your devotional this week, all 18 verses. 2 Corinthians 3. Read it from three or four different translations. You can find 50 translations online. Read it. Get inside it. Matter of fact, if you have questions about it, email me. Tom at New Hope Online. Tom at New Hope Online. Email me. I'd just love to talk about it. But it is one of the two central uh, and only passages that deal with transformation, and it lands there. And so, as a matter of fact, let's go ahead and sort of start right there. Um, uh, Amanda, I told you I'd let you know. By the way, today, I don't know, you're probably going to see more scripture on the screen (laughs) than in the last four sermons combined. That's not because we don't use scripture around here. It's because there's a bunch today. But let's look at 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18. I just want to... Now, the Lord is the Spirit... And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That word liberty is also translated freedom, okay? Everybody say freedom. Freedom. Okay, look at me, please. Freedom under, in any language, um, whether it's the original biblical languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, or whether it's language today, if you look it up in any language, freedom is never, I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it with some words that... I don't know, maybe Lisa Stone and people who speak language would get it reasonably, but I want to say the word and then I want to unpack it. Freedom, its definition is always negatively polarized. And what I mean by that, when a statement is negatively polarized, that means it'll have a phrase of not or, or no or something. So freedom, if you read it, and feel free, fact check it. Freedom is the absence of stuff. Freedom is never a final destination. When the Bible, when Jesus would say that, that, that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free, here we have learned the word truth very, very functionally and practically means unhidden, and that's important because it's the remedy for the crash and burn of mankind in Genesis 3, <clears throat> hiding from God. 
And so worship is defined as worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth, unhiddenness. We unhide before God. And that's uh, I, that every, I, for the thousand times I've said it, it's still none, no, no less exhilarating. Um, but in that, where it says right here, oh, not right there, it's gone. Okay, it's back. We need it. There we go. No, the verse before it, please. There's liberty, there's freedom. See, freedom is an absence of bondage, an absence of chain, chains, an absence of poverty, an absence of oppression. Go, go read it. See, it's an absence of stuff. But when, when at the opening verses of Galatians 5, when the apostle Paul would write, and I don't have that verse for you, but you can look it up, 5.1, it says, it's for freedom that we've been set free. I've laughed through the years because as many times as I've said that, where freedom is difficult to understand, how many know that phrase doesn't help us out at all? I've often read through that and said, and, and really sat in front of a Bible being open and holding my thumb up like that and said, right, you know. It's for freedom that you've been set free. Great. I have no clue what that means. But if you continue to read on past that, that's the same chapter that deal with the fruit of the Spirit, which I, I happen to believe is the fruit of freedom. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self, self, self excuse me, uh, and, uh, um, self-control, gentleness and self-control are those nine fruit that are listed. I don't believe Paul intended for it to be a complete or, de- or finite list, but nonetheless, we have those. And please hear me. If those qualities are internalized in your life, there's nothing that can hold you. I want to say that again. If I have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control at work inside me, there is nothing out there that can hold me. Not even if I haven't achieved the vocational success, material wealth or possessions or status by whatever culture would measure success. If I have that there, there's this amazing sense of freedom that comes that people typically associate with having status or an acquisition of, a, of stuff or whatever. Beloved, when he said you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free, freedom is found, watch, to the degree that I stand unhidden before God. It's the only place freedom's found. Only place freedom's found. You know, <clears throat> what's amazing is I've spent 40 years counseling people through secondary issues. What do you mean by that, Pastor? I counsel people in marriages and relationships going sour and blah, blah, blah. Every time it gets back to the problem of unhiddenness. As long as you're struggling with unhiddenness here in that innermost circle where only you and God abide, whatever happens out here is an outcome. I, we can deal with the secondary effects, but it won't be fixed until the problem is resolved right here. Any, does anybody understand what I'm saying? We can counsel everything in the world, and I have thousands of hours. <clears throat> only to come to terms with the fact that until the issue is resolved here, please hear me, your husband can't fix it, your wife can't fix it, your employer can't fix it, and all you do is keep developing this litany and list of things. Well, I can't ever succeed because so-and-so, because so-and-so, because so-and-so, because so-and-so, and you're still in bondage, blaming it on everyone there, but the problem is right here. When we stand unhidden before him, it's amazing the freedom that comes from the inside out. And here's the funny thing. It sort of irritates the world around you. I love that. Because free people smile. 
Free people are happy. They smile when they shouldn't. They're happy when they shouldn't be. They praise God. They irritate people who aren't. I know that because I've been on the side of the person being irritated (laughs) by a person with freedom and liberty. I wanted them to be dictated to by the same moment I was being dictated to, but that wasn't the case. They weren't. They were praising God. They were worshiping God. And I just wanted to, you know what I'm talking about. Don't anybody raise your hand. Okay. You know, you just want to, as as if by doing that and stopping them, it's going to fix the antagonism, but that's not the problem because the problem's right here. Okay. Enough said. Today we're going to, I need to start today's little uh, teaching with an apology. And here's the conviction, sincere one. As you've heard from my lips in recent months, I've, I've become sort of in the grip of concern that culture is defining secular culture, the world, as, as Paul used, the aeon. As a matter of fact, that, that, there's two words for world, <clears throat> and the one, aeon, probably is the closest term we have um, to understanding the word culture. The word culture, as we use it, does not appear in Scripture. But that word aeon does. When Paul uses this word, watch, he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, uh, to offer yourselves a living, holy sacrifice to God, and don't be conformed by or to the world. See, aeon is the collective consciousness, values, and unspoken influences of the age. That's what it is. And we are heavily influenced by the world around us, but he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that means there's an internalized, watch this, possibility of transformation that can happen irrespective of the pressures, the values, the norms, the news, the social media of the world. So I've been so influenced that the world is pressing churches and, and to, 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 to bow before it's its definition of what the gospel should say. And in past recent weeks, I've talked about how they want a gospel of love without holy. And please hear me, and I'll stop right here. The gospel, that is the good news. See, we have all levels of believers here. The good news, the message of hope for mankind. The gospel of God is informed by the nature of God. Why? Because God doesn't do anything he isn't. Everything he does is because he is. At the burning bush, first time anybody said, dude, what's your name? I am that I am. And that's the good news. Because God doesn't ever act independently of his nature. We can do that. God, listen to me. Do you understand God can't fake it? We have to. And I realize I've opened a can of worms right there that I can't even adjust because there's people who say, well, I'm just not going to fake it. I'm going to let the whole world know just how I feel. That's totally different. If you're using that as license, there's nothing I can do to help you. Just so go be miserable until you figure out that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) But isn't it great news that God can't fake it, that whatever he does is the result of who he is? The Bible said God is holy, God is love. Well, culture is wanting us to preach a gospel that says, just just love everybody. It's just love. It's just love. Love meets me where I am. Holy takes me where I need to go. Love, John 3.16, drove Jesus to the cross. Romans 1.4 says, holy brought him out of the tomb. Everybody get that? 
Love redeems me, holy transforms and heals me. I can't have one without the other. In like fashion, we're about to jump on a subject this morning that I need to apologize to you because I have not taught about it nearly enough through the years. And that has to do with generous giving. The times I've taught about it, I've come apologetically. And I've asked God to help me understand why. And here is my conviction. I grew up in and around church. And as far back as I can remember, the majority of teaching I heard about giving at offering times, even as, I mean, when I say as far back as I can remember, I just felt this little bit of being leveraged. And I want to say this. The church has been, voices in the church from a platform just like this, has, has done more to leverage people to give of earthly possessions because of fear than just about any voice out there. And I find it interesting that the primary thing that God says is cast out when I meet him is the very tool we use to manipulate people. When I say we, people that stand on this platform, I mean a platform like this. I can tell you it, doesn't, it has not happened here. And it comes in words such as like this, such as this, quoting Malachi. But it, when, and when they quote Malachi, matter of fact, if you grew up any around church, you say, and someone says, let's turn to Malachi 3, it's like, oh, crud, not Malachi 3. And he says, what is this you have done? You have robbed me in tithes and offering, and because of that, you're cursed with a curse. You see, under the law, it says if you don't obey the law, you're cursed with a curse. That's not good. That means whatever good God might have intended for you, he has withdrawn and he's just left you up to being whatever under the absence of blessing and whatnot. But it was a definitive act in saying, God, here's what will happen to you. And that is very, very, very important. But I, I want to show you, where do I show this? Because this wasn't included in, in the outline. By the way, if you'd like this outline whenever I get to it, we're done with it. Once again, Tom at New Hope Online, and I'll shoot it to you, and you can go over it. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. I want to show you something that's important. I hope I can get past this, sincerely. Now, this is the only place in the Bible that I'm aware of three terms uh, uh, showing up together, and that is fear, love, and worship. Now, the word used here is serve on the third line uh, almost uh, the third word from the right-hand side. You see that? And to serve the Lord, it's the same word that means worship. We're going to insert it there just for the fun of it. Here we go. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to... See the word, first word? What is that word? Everybody say it out loud. Fear. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and here we go, love him, and to serve the Lord with... Uh, your God with all your heart, and with all your soul. See, this would become something Jesus quoted when asked, what's the greatest law? And actually, Deuteronomy 10, this is, a, is an excerpt of Deuteronomy 6. We won't be going there. But he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17. Oh, wait a minute. Don't go there, Amanda. Leave this one. But to fear the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, love him, and worship him. Fear, love, and worship him. Wait Wait a minute. Now see, in the Old Testament, that word fear was used in like five different ways, but two of them predominantly. One, fear being the emotion we feel when there's a sense of imminent threat. And these are the two primary ways. And then the second word is his reverence. But it's the same word. 
But let's go forward. Now, this is the old covenant. Let's go forward to the new covenant and see if we have a problem. First John chapter four, verse 17. By this love, there's one of the three words, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day because as he is in the world, so are we in this world. Let's keep going. Uh, but there is no fear. Here comes those two words, no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Leave that verse, please, up there for a moment. Man, I hope I can get past this. I'm sincere. How many read that verse and say, Deuteronomy says, fear, love, worship. This verse says there's no fear in love. Is God confused? No. Let me show you how God redeems fear. And everyone, please remember where fear comes from in its inception. It's in Genesis chapter 3. It was deception, fear, and hiding that happened, that the three things that they took away from the Garden of Eden, okay, that were never intended to be there in the first place, as we looked at last week. But I want somebody, uh, keep your eyes open. Father, Holy Spirit, I, I, I am suspicious that you push the pause button in my brain right now, because someone is about to experience uh, deliverance, somebody in this room and someone watching online. And Lord, you know I don't say that sensationally or to use word to stimulate people emotionally, but to use words to make a declaration before you and before this group of people that I believe you prompted to place in my heart as a prophetic declaration for this moment right now at 11.04 a.m. Okay? Please notice this. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Read about fear in the Old Testament. It'll hold you in a grip and crush you. But God says, okay, great. Fear was started in the garden. Let me show you how I'll use fear. And so in Deuteronomy 10, he says, let's take that fear and use it to drive you to worship me and find the love that only you can do. But see, he goes a step further in the New Testament. When he gets to the New Testament, he is if to say, I'm on the other side of the cross now. The, bl- the blood of Jesus Christ has taken care of this. Watch. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Did you know for every person at some, at some level, fear is involved in sort of driving us to a God encounter. We become aware of a possibility and inside, we wouldn't say it this way, that we're fearful that that provision might not be ours. We're fearful. Somebody said, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're going to go to hell. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't want that. And I want heaven. And I'm fearful that I might not get the blessing of heaven. So fear at some level is involved. But watch what happens. Watch what happens under the new covenant. God says, here's how I'm going to redeem fear. I'm going to use fear as the vehicle to get you to my front door. But when you knock on my front door and you reach out to me through the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, through the mercy that only he offers, I want to let you know. As a matter of fact, who here has ever received a substantial check? Maybe a, uh, we got a, a, a refund in the mail uh, from the government, from IRS, and, and about three weeks ago. And I was, yes, happy for that. I knew what it was when the envelope came. We've been getting it by envelope, never been able to do e-file because my wife has never changed her name on her social security card for the thousand years that we've been married. (laughs) That's information you needed to know. That has nothing to do with anything. Um, 
She has since repented of that, by the way. And after a thousand years of being married, she finally got her social security card. So for the first time, why am I saying this? Stop. Okay. Um, but here's what I did. I noticed immediately it was a refund check and I was excited. And Jamie, I tore that envelope open very carefully, nonetheless. I pulled that check out, tore it to pieces, threw it in the trash, and I held that envelope saying, look what I got from the government. You can say, I have no idea what you're talking about, bro. That's the silliest thing I ever heard of. Listen, when the envelope of fear delivers me to Jesus, to the door of Jesus Christ, he says, fear is just a delivery system. Once you get to my front door, we keep the love and throw out the fear. God doesn't open the envelope and tear up the check and throw and keep the envelope. God says, listen, let me just pop you right out of that right now. And here, fear got you here, but fear won't sustain it. And he goes on to say it right there. Isn't it, please somebody hear me this morning. Isn't it wonderful to know that God can even redeem fear? Hell can take its best shot. I'm gonna make you afraid. God says, that's fine, bring it. I'll just use it to deliver you to me so I can throw out the vehicle that delivered you and keep the cause that brought you here, and that's love. Anybody get that? Come on, come on. God even redeems fear. Okay, enough said. But what bugs me, okay, man, I'm really on a soapbox, is when pastors use fear and leverage to do that. So we're in this passage on transformation. Let's, let me jump on this horse and saddle it. Rats, 17 minutes in. How does this happen? You guys are just so fun to talk to. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Here we go. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Again, it's coming, I'm sure. There it is. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Here it goes. But we all, with unveiled face, you're going to need to read the previous verses to get that. Beholding as in a mirror. Everybody say a mirror. The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory as from the Lord, the Spirit. Online, if you want to know what this verse means, say, send me an email. Yo, Pastor Tom, what does it mean? I'll point you to the, to the link just several weeks ago we taught on this. But here's what I haven't taught on. And here's what hit me this week, and I was sharing it with staff, so excited. Because for years I thought... Here's why you need God to transform you by the power of the Spirit. As you stand in front of the mirror, you'll begin to see the best version of you. How many know that sounds good and preach as well? I preached it a lot. Problem is, that's not what it says. God says, as I stand in front of the mirror of transformation, I don't see the best version of me. I suddenly, I subtly begin to see me fading out, and the reflection I see is Him. Which the same guy that wrote this under the anointing of the Holy Spirit also wrote this verse in another one of his letters, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in me, right here, being transformed from image to from glory to glory into the same image as him. You know, as we stand in front of that mirror and we see the reflection, it begins to change. Now, I want you to say this on purpose, and especially if you're married. I want you to turn in the most gracious and positive affirmation. I want you to look them in the face. And if you're not married, still tell the person next to you. Say, you know, I've always thought you look like somebody I know. Him. Come on. And I don't care if you think that or not, say it. 
Tom, you've always looked like somebody I know. <laughs> I, I love that. Okay, now, with regard, I, let's see if we can cut to chase here, and, and with regard to giving, I'm going to have to cut through. Um, and I, I know you don't like to be read to, but this is straight from the Uraeus rendition of, um, of, of Next Step. So let's just move through this real quickly. If I read, I go faster. Say, thank you, Jesus. No. You know, it's a dangerous thing to be sitting here just when I have the understanding of curse on my mind and elite, not, not anyway, it's not word. Second <laughs> Corinthians 3 introduces us to a, a truth that helps us to understand the functioning of our faith, perhaps like no uh, other verse in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, now get this, if you're a new believer especially, under the Old Covenant, that's the first half of the Bible, God's people were required to observe a seeming endless list of laws that covered every aspect of life, ranging from worship to personal relationships, to what you could and could not eat, to where you could go, to special days, type of closing, sacrifice of animals, giving, and on and on and on. They had to toe the line, so to speak, or they would be, quote, curse with a curse. Um, they had to observe every letter of the law. Paul would use that phrase. Everybody say, letter of the law. They had to observe every letter of the law. As a matter of fact, the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus trying to fix where the Pharisees had taken it and twisted it to mean something that it didn't mean. And so about 12 times, 11 or 12 times in those, uh, let's see, five, six, seven, three chapters, he says, you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say, okay? Now, um, <clears throat> as the new covenant, as new covenant believers... Our relationship with God is not achieved through the listing of our detailed observance or obedience to the letter of the law, but rather uh, by and because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ through his death on the cross. It is his death on the cross that introduces us to the possibility of the Holy Spirit living in us and through us, transforming us. The good news is the Spirit of God living in us writes his word in our, on our hearts instead of tablets of stone. That's Jeremiah the prophet said, there's coming a day under a new covenant when I won't write these commandments on stone or implied on, on parchment or paper or scrolls, as it would be later. But he said, I'm going to write it on your hearts. Now, earlier in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul references that. As a matter, matter of fact, he said, you have become my living letter. And he said, you are those who understand it, uh, that, that walk now according to the spirit, not the letter. He says, for the spirit of the law gives life, but the letter kills. Boy, why does the letter kill? Because you can read um, in Galatians 3 and in James that he says, here's the problem with the law. If you violate one letter, you violate the whole thing. It's all over. You can keep 99.9% of these hundreds of laws, but if you violate one, the whole curse of the whole law comes down on you. That won't work. See, Romans 7 and 8 begins to tell us, Paul unpacks why it wouldn't work and why this new covenant does bring something the old covenant could not perform. Praise God. So we live by the spirit of the law, okay? Uh, when I wrote that, when you, if you were looking at this document that will be handed out today, I, I say pay attention to the capital S and lowercase s. Capital S refers to the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that writes the spirit, little s, of the law 
versus the letter of law. Now, this phrase, spirit of the law, is used in our judicial system today. It comes right out of scripture. I don't know that many of the ter- attorneys that quote it know that, but that's where it comes from. When they stand in front of it and said, um, uh, yes, your honor, my client was, was going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, and, but they were on the way to the hospital for an emergency, and these are not people who just blithely blow off speed limit signs or law, they observe it. And even in this, they were observing the spirit of the law, trying not to go a million miles an hour over the speed limit, but trying to get to the hospital. Uh, What's another example? You getting my point? The spirit of the law versus the details? See, because what Jesus was correcting, actually, in in the Sermon on the Mount, is they kept the letter of the law and missed the spirit. They miss the purpose. So when you say the spirit of the law, you're talking about the intent or the heart of God in the matter. Is everybody tracking with me? So if you go to the Old Testament, we can fairly ask, okay, these laws were written, they did this, but what's the spirit behind it? In other words, what's the real reason God did it? What's the bigger picture? And every time you do that, you're gonna find someplace in our current life of faith where those principles can be applied, not in the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. They have this elaborate dietary regimen. Why? Because the time in which they were living, largely uh, in nomadic status, but even in the ancient Near East, he said, here are the things that I want you to eat and not to eat. Why? Because they were generally healthy. Now, you could keep that to the letter of the law today, and be healthy, but you wouldn't be any more spiritual than anybody in the room. In other words, there was a reason. God said, I I want you to to take care of your body. As a matter of fact, if you fast forward to Acts chapter 10 and 11, you find out Peter, a really good Jewish boy, has a vision where God sort of lets down all these unclean animals he was never supposed to eat. And he said, arise, kill, and eat. And he goes, no, Lord, you know I've never violated the law. And he says, you're missing the point. Peter was missing the spirit of the law. And, and everybody, does, I just need to ask this, and it will help us move to a conclusion. Do you get what I'm talking about when I mean the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law? Everybody get that? It's the intent, the heart of God, the real reason, the meaning. And that's what I want to know when I read God's word. I don't want to know the letter of the law. I want to know the heart of God. As a matter of fact, a close friend asked me recently, we were sitting on my front porch, and he says, He says, man, I just love the way you love God's word. I said, thank you. And he says, what is it that that drives you to, to, to," he says, you you know, you just are all in. And I said, well, thank you again. And he said, and he asked me a great question, phrased it. He says, as a pastor, is it, you're so passionate about it because you want to be equipped, you know, Ephesians 4, so you can equip others. Is that it just to really know that you're equipped to equip others? And I said, no. And he goes, well, why? I said, I want to know the guy who wrote it. First and foremost, I want to know the heart of God. I want to know, I want to know how this little reflection here ties into this one here. Oh, because wherever we can know the heart of God, we will know what God is doing to redeem us, to bring out every place in Scripture. There's redemption on every page of the Bible. That is the spirit of the law, if you will. I I want to know that. Okay, so where do I go next to to try and and, and get done here? We've done the letter of the law. In the Old Testament, 
you will find there are four kinds of giving. Let me just cut to chase right here. Maybe I'll do better than I think. Everybody say tithe, tithe. offerings, first fruit, and alms. Those are the four categories of giving. There was an elaborate network of giving, offerings here, offerings there. And why? Because God wanted his people known to be generous, a generous people. And so there's this elaborate network of, of these giving opportunities. And, 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 and as we're going through next steps, I would have the occasion to dig into these more deeply. But <clears throat> watch this. The word tithe is, literally means a tenth. Each household would give a tenth of their increase. Abraham and Jacob tithed before the law was written. That's Genesis chapter 14 and chapter 26. God instructed Moses to write tithing into the law, and Jesus commended tithing under the law. Everybody got that? But here's the deal. That is certainly, what I found out is that it certainly is, again, people who will stand on a platform like this and say, beloved, you need to understand that tithing was before the law. And Moses, here's how they'll sequence it. They'll quote Malachi and say, if you don't tithe, you're cursed with a curse. And they say, in case you think it's just the old law, Abraham gave before the tithe. But, but what they fail to mention is this. Uh, excuse me. Abraham gave before the law. Here's what they fail to mention. Abraham gave out of a willing heart. And it doesn't say ever that if Abraham hadn't have given, he would have been cursed with a curse. But it, what it does say is because he did give, there was a blessing that came, and you can't separate that. There was a blessing that God said, because you have done this, here's what I'll do. That's before the law. And guess what? That is also after the law. So, okay, it's the letter of the law, 10th. We don't need to you know, throw that out. Hang on to that thought for a minute. Uh, okay, let's go on to um, offerings. And and by the way, I'm not listing the scripture that I have to support it just for time, but I will send you this outline. All of the supporting verses are there, and and they're really good to see. Offerings were essentially free will gifts of worship above and beyond the tithe. But I love uh, the way that, let's see, uh, Exodus 35. Is that the one by the hand of commended for the Lord? In Exodus 35, verses 5 and 29. Oh, you have them up there. It mentions bringing an offering to the Lord. Did you see that phrase on the second line? Whoever is of a willing heart. He doesn't say, and command them to bring it, and if they don't, they're cursed. No, he says, have them bring an offering, which in their regimen of giving was over and above the tenth. Okay? And whoever has a willing heart. Notice even in the Old Testament what's conveyed. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at these in just a quick moment and see... Okay, that's the letter of the law I'm reading to you. Where's the spirit of it? We're about to see it, okay? First fruits. First fruits were quite simply the first of each harvest every year. So you have a tithe, and, 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 and it starts with Abraham. He says, everything I have is from him. And as in the words of Romans later, from him, through him, and to him. So everything. And so that is the spirit of tithing is honoring God as the source of all that I am. Then offerings, whoever has a willing heart and then first fruits that he's going to be first. And then the last one is alms. And that's giving to my brother or sister who is in need. As a matter of fact, in that same passage I read to you earlier, first John four, just before it in chapter three, it talks about giving. 
And, and that theme is carried throughout that, but it's giving to help your brother who is in need. So where is the spirit of the law in these as we come to the, to the New Testament? You'll find in places like Matthew chapter 6, he talks about the Pharisees waving their bravado because they would give to help the needy. And he says this, he says, don't do that and don't display your good deeds. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Did you know I've heard a hundred times through the years people say, uh, you know, I, I, I don't ever give in check or a tithing envelope. I just give cash in the offering because the Bible says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That, that has to do with alms. Why? Because if I come up to Linda and say, hey, sweetheart, I, I heard you, your car was broken down and you're having to find rides or whatever the case may be, if you have a need, uh, as a single woman forging ahead in this world and say, you know, here's some money to help get that done. I don't need to go and say, good, good morning, everyone. Uh, last week, I gave Linda $500. And I'm awesome. It's that kind of giving where God says, you don't need to tell a soul for reasons of, as a matter of fact, when we give, we try to do it even more secretly so that people won't know where it came from. Why? Because you don't want to leverage the person to whom it's been giving as if there's some sort of debt to you because you gave out of a blessing from and to God. I got to tell you, when I get to heaven, I'm expecting some rewards. You can say, well, that's arrogant. It is not. Because the Bible says, lay up your treasures in heaven, not on earth. I invest there. We've given a lot that you don't know about, and I don't want to say anything more about it. Brenda and I always have and always will. Why? Because I care way more <laughs> about balancing the books on the other side than here. He says, lay up your treasures in heaven. Okay, enough said. So... What is the spirit? Now, I, I want to deal with something first before we go a step further. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. Basically, redeeming us from the curse of the law means you don't have to keep those rules to earn a relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet, too many times, I've heard people stand up and say, Quote Malachi and say, you need to tithe or you're cursed with a curse. Please look me in the face. You are not. If you don't give another penny, you're not cursed under the curse of the law. That has to do with my salvation and securing a place in the kingdom. You are not cursed with a curse if you don't give. The however is, you are leaving blessing on the table that might otherwise be yours. Remember Abraham? God didn't say, great, I'm glad you gave. Now I'm not going to curse you with toenail fungus. He doesn't say that. He says, I saw what you give. Now, let me bless you. See, when we, and here's a principle from Abraham to Cornelius. Cornelius isn't in my outline. Can I just tell you about Cornelius? These are weird moments. Cornelius, by understanding of evangelical doctrine, in chapter 10, he's not even saved. What's up with that? And he prays every day to the God of the Jews. Remember the person about saying, I know the name of Jesus, those who do and don't. He doesn't. But he's praying the best he knows how to pray. He's not trying to be anything. He, and it says, and he gave alms. That word is mercy gifts. Mercy gifts. And that, boy, there's so much good stuff behind that. But he gave of that. 
God looks down from heaven, sends an angel, angel pops in, Cornelius. Yes. God has seen your alms and heard your prayers. But dear angel, I'm not saved yet. Doesn't make any difference. He didn't say that. Okay. He heard your prayers. There's something weird here. What? God says, I've seen you open your hand of your resources to lift judgment off the lives of the oppressed around you. Now watch this, boy. I'm about to open my hand to you and give you what your money can't buy. What do you mean by that? I want you to dispatch a courier to go get a man named Peter. Because right about now, I'm giving him a vision that's messing him up. He's about to find out that I'm inviting the Gentiles in and it's going to be through him, a Jew, and he doesn't care too much for Gentiles. But... Listen to this. Isn't it amazing how God can even take a person who is mildly racist, if not out now, poke him with a vision, radically transform his heart where he says, what on earth is wrong with me? And cause him to preach a message that five minutes before he wouldn't preach. This is 11 years after the upper room. He's spirit filled and he still has Gentile issues. We're not letting those colored people in. See, nobody's going to say amen to that. He said, I can't believe you're saying that the day and age we're in. I'm telling you that the power of the Holy Spirit messes with us at the deepest levels, disrupts things that we don't even know we're holding in our heart, and empowers us to bring and deliver a grace and a force of life that couldn't have come out of our mouth five minutes before. Why? Transformation. We are being transformed. Oh, come on. Very simply, the curse of the law has been dealt with by the ultimate giving of by God. There's nothing we can give to remedy the curse or we are making the statement, watch this. Here's what preachers who stand on a platform like this and say, and if you don't give, you're cursed with a curse. Please watch me. You want to know what that gospel message is? I want you to know that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you. It can redeem you from every problem of sin. And brokenness, devastation, addiction, sorry attitude, and blackness of soul. Bless God. Can somebody say amen? Come on, indulge me. This is fun. No, come on. You can do better than that. This is a pretend moment. That's right. So I'll pretend I'm that kind of preacher and you pretend you're really Pentecostal. All right? There. (laughs) That was so mean. Oh, goodness. Okay. Bless God he can do that. Unless you don't tithe. Then the cross doesn't work. Next. Come on, somebody. You're cursed with a curse. Oh, the one that the cross undid? Yeah. But if you don't give it that, matter of fact, the offering's already come and go. You didn't put 10% in? Sorry. Back to no man's land for you. Are you saved? Well, I was before I went to church, but I didn't tithe. Lost that. What are you doing now? Running home to get my checkbook. Got to buy that brother back quick. Come on. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I will not be a part of a church that is driven by fear past the door of meeting Jesus Christ. He said, I've used fear to get you here. I threw that out. What are you doing reaching out and pulling that envelope out of the trash and trying to use it again in the house of God? Did that make sense to anybody here? Okay. All right, the spirit. Man, I got lots more to tell you. You need this outline. There's nothing that reflects the disposition of my heart like what I do with my treasure. Okay, so what is the spirit of the law? Here it comes. 
What is the spirit of the law for generous giving? Remember tithing? The spirit of the law is God. Because here's what tithing was about in the Old Testament, the heart of God. Lord, I want to honor you first. Because I realize that the wealth of my life and eternity, everything that I have, closing verse of, of, matter of fact, we forget the closing verse of Romans chapter 11 before we say, and so I urge you, brethren, by the, and so I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God. That's 12.1. Closing verse is, to God, everything is from him, through him, through, from him, through him, and back to him. <laughs> and he says, and so I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. What's the spirit of the law at work here? It goes like this, tithing. Here's our prayer for tithing. May the spirit, oh, I like that. Can, can we read this together? Is that too much? I'm using the word animate every time because I don't know a better word. Transformation suddenly animates parts of me that are here that have been laying dead or dormant. God says he's constantly resurrecting parts of me that the adversary would just have remain in the grip of this death and sin world. But it's constantly going on. That's transformation, okay? So so, uh, maybe it's too much to read. May the spirit animate the spirit. See the upper, see the capital S and the little s? May the Holy Spirit animate the spirit of the law and birth within me the starting place of gratitude that begins with acknowledging everything I have is from, oh, hey, I left off a really important part in trying to condense this. You got to see one verse. Hang on. Galatians chapter three, verse 24. Read all of Galatians three. It is the summary on separating ourselves from the law. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Here's what I've had fun for 40 years doing. The word tutor is actually an escort for wealthy families that would deliver a child to a teacher. And at times that person would teach themselves, but it was most often a person who would lead, uh, in other words, they were a household type of servant who was responsible for getting the child to school or to their, to their, to their tutor and dropping them off. Do you get that? That the law was for purposes of dropping us off at the doorstep of grace. I want to say that again. The law was for purposes of being the two, read it, of dropping us off at the doorstep of grace. But what does that mean? The law was a starting point. Can I just testify, and this is much as I'll say about Brenda's and my giving. Never in our married life have we only given a tenth. Our, our total giving on and off the books every year, and I'm only saying that because of a commitment to worship and Again, this stuff I don't say out loud, but it, it would easily be significantly every year beyond twice that. Why? It's because I'm more spiritual than you, and I'm entirely awesome, and you're not. I'm not saying that for that reason. I'm saying that because we both live in the grip of a Savior. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. And there is, I I really need to do a whole series on it because of, and again, I want to apologize for not having done it, but it is, there's nothing more liberating than giving. Nothing. Okay. Uh, In this, in the ancient world, the child would often have a tutor or a guardian 
and they learned they needed to learn and, and, and they, were, they needed to be where they were needed, where, where they needed to be, and so they would drop them off. I just told you that. Okay, now back to tie the spirit of the law. We'll wrap it up right here. And don't anybody say, you promise, and ask a question. Here it is. May the spirit animate the spirit of the law and birth within me the starting place of gratitude that begins with acknowledging everything I have from God. And so I honor him in the recognition of that in my giving. Can I say this? Start there even if it's not a tenth. For me, the starting place is the tenth. No thoughts about it. God, I'm going to begin there as a statement. Uh, uh, for years it was automated, and actually it still is, in a, in a low-tech way, every, every week. That's gone. How do I know that? Because I gave Debbie Jackson about 50 checks. It's the only place that, I, that, we, have, that we write a check for. Everything else is digital, and I could give online. But um, I sort of like all of those canceled checks. That's so cool. Those are the only ones I get back, okay? Um, every week. God, you're first. Matter of fact, no questions. There's no discussion about it. I don't remind God every week, Lord, this week I came again starting at 10% because you're awesome. It's just a done deal, okay? That's the spirit. Everybody get the spirit of it? Okay, so what's the spirit of first fruits? Simply put, God, you're first. You're first. The tithe doesn't come out last. It's the first thing out of my paycheck every week. That's a testimony. It's not the law. You don't have to do it that way. And God's not going to beat you up if you get here and you've been paid on Monday or Friday and you didn't write your check first. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying as a statement of, of, of worship in my life between God and me. And I, I don't know that I've ever said this publicly. And again, I don't mean it to elevate Brenda or me in any fashion. I'm just saying what I believe the spirit of the law is, and I can support this. Offerings. I love that one. Offerings is, Lord, I want to reflect my heart. I love how in the Old Testament in the law, it says that, that bring the offerings. He who has a willing heart. Even in the Old Testament, it said giving there was a reflection of the heart. The scripture I just read from the abundance of the, uh, there's two things that, that, that indicate the heart in the New Testament. It says from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then it says where your treasure is, there your heart is also. You go look at your tre- checkbook and you're going to find out where your core values are. And it will just tell you that. Go do it for yourself. And then the last one I love is, is alms. <clears throat> May the spirit animate the spirit of the law within me unto caring consciousness to give those to give the, to those in need around me. You see, the, the first three are Father, I want to bless the name of the Lord, and the last one is I want to bless that person right there. Um, and when I saved the last verse until, man, I am so sorry that the time got away. I hate that. Okay, you got to see this. Let's run that video. I want to show you my favorite verse. Hold, hold on. It says, let me read this verse of scripture and I promise you will quit here. And now, brothers and sisters, I, we want you to know about the grace of God. Everybody say the grace of God. The grace of God that has been given to the Macedonian churches. By the way, the Macedonian churches, if you want to know who he's talking about, that's the Philippian church. They were in Macedonia. So go read the letter to the Philippians and you're going to find out about these people. Philippian church is amazing. Um, as I heard a, a, a 
a scholar, say 35 years ago, he said, I pulled professors, teachers, and pastors from around the world to ask them which New Testament church they would most like to, to pastor. And he said, hands down, it's the Philippian church. And he said, I asked why. And he says, here's why. He said, if I can summarize all of this, because they were the church that was felt more than heard. Woo! I want to be a church that's felt more than heard, okay? So he says, I want to tell you about this great grace. He says, in the midst of severe trial and their overwhelming, overflowing joy, in other words, Interest rates were at an all-time high. The economy was upside down. A single two-by-four cost $8 at Lowe's. That's what it says. Verse 2. He says, but even in the middle of that great oppression, they just overflowed with giving. Verse 4. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege, or that word is grace. Same word. For the favor. For the grace of giving, sharing in the Lord's service. service." Uh, Look at verse 6. And so we urge Titus that he, just as he had made at the beginning to bring also to the completion, the act of grace on your part, grace. Okay. Let's do a quick flashback and see what grace does. This is from Romans five. If you want to know the teaching on this, I'll show you, but this comes from the last closing verses of Romans five. There's me. There's sin around me. It says where sin abounds. Sin is a force at work in this world, crushing me, wanting to hold me in bondage and squeeze and make my world small. But then grace begins to push back. And as it pushes back, in this case today, through giving, it doesn't just stop at where sin started. Watch, it overbounds. It says grace overbounds. It doesn't just say, I'm barely holding sin off. See, sin becomes a self-defeating propagation because every time it acts, it says grace reacts to sin acting and it doesn't just hold them there. Watch that as it finishes cycling one more time. It pushes back, and it pushes sin back, creating a bigger world for me. Now, grace applies to, there's 183 times it's used in the New Testament. I think about seven years ago, we read and studied every one of them for a long time. Everybody was graced out when we were done. But can I tell you this? You want a bigger space in your life? Jump in on grace. And one of the ways you jump in on grace is by giving. Now, here's the other thing that just emboldened me this morning because I've always been so sensitive to the fact that a platform just like this has often been used to manipulate people. And because of that, culture looks back and they see some of the teachers, well, you know, if you'll send me this money and God's going to give you a hundredfold return. I got to tell you guys, I'm one of those skeptical people that I watch some of these televangelists, people on TV or online or wherever, and they say, God will bless you and give you a hundredfold. My question is, why don't you mail your money to yourself? I guess that didn't hit you like it hit me. I'm often wondering, dude, bypass the middle nine. You got 10, put it in your own offering. You're gonna get back a thousand. When a thousand comes, put it in your own offering. You're gonna get back a million, do it quick. My question is, do they believe their own stuff? Okay, never mind. Maybe nobody relates to that. <clears throat> And and because of the pushback of culture reacting to a lot of the voices of being a huckster, I haven't taught about giving, giving that I walk in and practice. And I just want to confess and sincerely repent to you this morning because I don't know another area of my life personally where Tom has really identified a point of blessing that I don't stand from here and preach and tell you about it. And I haven't done that about giving. And I'm 
And there may be people here that are struggling under bondage of lack and lack of funds or lack of whatever this morning because of that very reason, and I won't be complicit in that any longer. A giving, generous heart unlocks the grace of God that pushes back the boundaries of our life in immeasurable fashion. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.